You're listening to The 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at Seventh Row with the number seven spelled out or online at seventh-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-Row.com. Think of the Lady Anne's. Mm. <laughs> I I thought they were both very unfortunate. <laughs> um, that they both either directly or indirectly had, I feel like, some sort of substance abuse problem. They both, both of their scenes were cut to the bone to the point that the actresses had no real chance to go through an arc where they came to love Richard. It was just like, I hate you. You're disgusting. Okay, we'll get married. Fine. (laughs) You know, and it's like, okay. And then you never see them again. And then they're dead. Um, But it was a very, I thought both of their portrayals were very weird. Like you wouldn't see an Ophelia played like that. You know, that was just like two dimensional. How do you mean? Can you talk about the Olivia Anne a little bit? Sure. So she just kind of had that weird, and this may also be what we were talking about before about that, you know, the style of the time. But yeah. she had a kind of like thousand foot stare the whole time. Like that, yeah. uh, she never really connect. Uh, she didn't really connect for me to him, even in the scene, you know, in the, and also the fact that they split up the lady and seduction scenes into two separate scenes was odd i felt and it kind of took the momentum out of it uh but like even when he's like i'll kill myself she's like no don't do it i whatever it's like okay well i don't really see where the reality of this is and then when she like passes out on the throne when he's crowned to feed into him saying give out that my wife lady Anne is sick and like to die Mm -hmm. if she really is sick and like to die like, was she really sick? Like, or, you don't have like, to worry about murdering her if she's going to kick it pretty soon anyway. Well, that's what I I'm mean, saying. an OD seemed pretty likely. Oh, in, in the McKellen, definitely. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh. Were you talking I, about... Yeah, McKellen. Say, say what? I love Lady Anne and the McKellen. You do? Yes. Just, okay, tell me about that. Why? Well, why do you disagree, first of all? You seem I like you... I don't disagree i feel like she was i feel like that actress was fighting an uphill battle because there wasn't a lot for her to grab onto because they carved up the scene the seduction scene and then we just see her become a drug addict for the rest of the play i mean all right i have two comments about that (laughs) um first of all you're quite right that they carved up the seduction scene um, in a way that I don't think was helpful to Kristen Scott Thomas. But A, she acts the hell out of that scene. She does. And and B, it's like, 
it's a really different Lady Anne than I've ever seen in any other production. Mm-hmm. She's so like, it makes it clear that she is, she's not seduced by him so much as she's so cold and so vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And he sort of pounces on that and exploits her vulnerability rather than making her love him. Mm-hmm. Which that makes moment- sense. Yes, absolutely. It makes much more sense than the idea that he's seducing her, you know, right. genuinely making her love him. Right. And there's that moment when he, he has, he holds the dagger to his throat and says, bid me kill myself. Um, take up this dagger or take up me. Mm-hmm. It's like, he's created two options for her and she's in such a bad place that those seem like the only two options available. Right. The false dichotomy. Yeah. Precisely. Well, no, it, it, and right, and that's and they did do they definitely did a better job with that in the McKellen than in the Olivier, because you know there's the parallel between that and the when he seduces Queen Queen Elizabeth later, where he's like, "Look, here are your two choices," and he's just much more blunt in the in the Elizabeth scene. Well, he does know that she hates him, so. justifiably so. Yes. I think one of the key, <laughs> one of the key lines in the seduction scene is when he says, "Your bedchamber." Which mm-hmm. in yeah. the Olivier one, he whispers into her ear as like, ha ha ha, how about your bedchamber? Let's mm-hmm. get it on. And then in the McKellen one, he says it into lens to us um, mm-hmm. and whispers it. So she doesn't hear it and he's telling us his plan, but yeah. he doesn't whisper that into her ear. That's not part of his seduction of her or whatever his persuasion. <laughs> right. His argument, his uh, his argument by the prosecution but i feel like that's another example of him being evil in the mckellen where it's like i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna you know i'm gonna sleep with this girl as opposed to in the olivier it's almost like a weird like what was that awful dating system that was all over the game or whatever oh jesus right but like that the olivier is like how about we go hook up? And she's like, you're a disgusting pig. He's like, I am. But at least I know that. You <laughs> like know, whereas, like, that's some weird strategy to get her attention. Like, you know, where, like, if, even if she's spitting on him and telling him he's a disgusting bottle spider, bunchback toad, he's like, well, I have your attention, which is disgusting. But, you know, whatever. It's part of his char- It's part of his character's, like, pursuing this overall goal. Whereas the McKellen's like, I'm going to hit that. I thought that it was like, mm, I don't, I don't, I feel uncomfortable about that. Well, but he doesn't, right? There's that one scene where she's like, come, has that right. come hither look, and he's just like, I'm going to turn off the light and say bye. I don't care about you. Totally. But then why was she like, why was she, uh, what, I, I guess I just don't understand the birds and the bees, but like, why is she into him? Like, why is she like, why don't you come to bed, you bunchback psychopath? And he's like, I'm good. I'm going to sleep in the den. Like, I don't know. It was a weird, and she's like, all right, I guess I'll go just do heroin until I die. Yes. <laughs> Very Angela. <laughs> like, I am sorry for dominating the conversation about the McKellen, but not sorry enough not to do it. <laughs> the most Canadian phrase. I've ever heard. <laughs> um, so like, so the McKellen hacked the play to pieces, it's true. Mm-hmm. Which made it especially weird for that to be the first time I saw it, by the way. Um, but one of the things that it did do particularly well um, with Lady Anne 
was they have all of these extra textual scenes that do so much to establish her character. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's like two important moments post the seduction scene. Um, There's when Richard and Lady Anne go to that dinner party, you know? Yes. Yes. And he, he brings her in by the hand and she smiles at him and is like, Richard, you're right about stuff. And he holds her hand at the table, you know? Mm-hmm. It's almost like even though they're married, the seduction isn't over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is like, it's like once she's thrown her lot in with him, he is her husband and she loves him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that scene where she tries to seduce him and he turns off the light and goes away, one of the things that that makes clear to me is a she's genuinely fallen for him at this point, mm-hmm. and all of her subsequent stuff is not only he's awful, but also he's awful and has no interest in me. Yeah, and two, Richard genuinely is interested in absolutely nothing but power. Mm-hmm. He doesn't mm-hmm. care about the trappings of power. He doesn't care about the side benefits. He doesn't care about adulation, like. He has this woman. He has what he wants from her. He's not even going to fuck her. Mm-hmm. He has no interest in that. Right. And it's yeah. as evidenced by the fact that he can't produce an heir either is something that, you know, is important to think of that mm-hmm. he's so obsessed with his, you know, his power, his, you know, he has no, if he's not, or you know, whether that's him not caring about continuing his line and it's all about him, but like he makes no effort to produce an heir. Mm. Um, I mean, but, the other yeah. thing too is that, um, I mean, just back to back at the seduction scene is that in McKellen's, he becomes so sort of just ex- the way he accepts the mean things that she says to him and the way he just backs off is mm-hmm. very, very endearing. Whereas Laurence Olivier is, is still very mustache twirling like, but you're <laughs> yeah, going really to is. love me no matter yeah. what. Whereas yeah. McKellen really does sort of back down and he becomes seemingly vulnerable. I mean, it's a calculated vulnerability, but he does sure. become that. And so it's easy to understand how that would help persuade her. And that if he were to continue a similar sort of, you know, letting her see certain parts of his vulnerability, that that would be enough to maybe make her fall, fall for him because we've seen all these other people in his thrall to his charm. Mm-hmm. Um, and just about the hacking up of her scenes, the one scene that I had a big problem with was when she basically she has that scene where she's at some kind of garden party with all the other women and she's just like standing against a tree and saying, you know, her marriage is over. Mm-hmm. And that scene seemed so like, I don't know, maybe something got lost in the edit because it seemed like something was missing. It was so out of the blue and disconnected from everything else, that scene just did not seem to fit. Is that the one where she's like, I've never, is that, I forget, I remember, I can picture the scene, but is that where she's saying, like, I've never slept, I've, I've, ne- I've never slept in his bed because he has these horrible dreams? Is that what she says in that scene? Yeah, yeah I think so. It is, that's, yeah, that's because it's a very pastoral, it's like a really pleasant picnic they appear to be having. And then she's like, <laughs> my life is hell and I wish I was dead. Which happens at all the picnics I go to, but is a really unfortunate, you know, really unfortunate scene. Maybe go um, on fewer picnics. <laughs> <laughs> My picnic career is over. <laughs> um, <I'm just> 
Uh, yeah, it was very. It is a very weird setting for them to drop that in, but I don't know where. Yeah, I don't. I don't know where the right place to have that type of scene is. It's like at a shady bar. <laughs> it cheers. Well, You're like. It wasn't just bar. the setting for me. It was the fact that there was nothing around it. Like we just cut to her and. Who is she talking to? She's sort of far enough away from them that it almost seems like she's talking to herself. Why are they there? Why is it set there? Why is this scene just like randomly plopped in there? I mean, obviously, it's there to give us some information about her, but it just seems so clumsily thrown in. Yeah. I will confess, though, moving on to a different Lady Anne-related topic, my favorite line of hers, my favorite line delivery of hers, is when she's sitting with Buckingham in the projection room, like stoned out of her mind. Mm -hmm. And she says to him, basically, I think my husband's going to kill me. Yeah. Zero interest in the outcome of that statement. Yeah. She's ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, this is, this is off the syllabus, but like when I saw the Mark Rylance, Richard, the third that he was doing in rep with that, the Twelfth Night that you guys talked about on the Twelfth Night episode. Mm-hmm. And in that scene, in one of the worst choices I've ever seen on stage, Lady Anne was like sitting in his lap. And before he had the line, give out my wife is sick and like to die, he literally licked her face. Like he grabbed her head and just mm. licked up the length of her face. Give out my wife, Lady Anne is sick and like to die and licked up the length of her face. And mm. Kevin Cadardo in the back row went, oh, come on. What are you doing? <laughs> um, so yeah, that was just, I just wanted to take a shot at Mark Rylance really quick. Um, anyways, what were we talking about? Old choice. <laughs> I think, I think Alex, you and I have tweeted about my, my feelings about Mark Rylance that I've never really actually talked about, but. Yeah, I know you don't like him. I have I problems have... with him, but they're less to do with his performance and more to do with his insistence that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a big one. Also, the fact that, you know, he wins awards and then, like, does performance art pieces for awards that, you know, like, oh, well, the person that, you know, I just imagine being like the person who came in second to him for a Tony Award. And you're like, oh, cool. I'm glad this means nothing to you. This would have made my career. I had a, I, had a, I was going to thank my mom, but I love this monologue from that Tom Stoppard short play. So cool. Thanks for cheapening our entire industry. Thanks. Thanks. Mark Rylance, if you're listening, come at me, bro. Let's go. This podcast is really great. <laughs> <laughs> ah, this is the future lost episode of the 21st Folio. Never. We're publishing this and publicizing it like hell. <laughs> <laughs> my feud with Mark, my one-sided feud with Mark Rylance will move Precisely. so many downloads. <laughs> it's apropos for a Richard III episode. Absolutely. And Mark, if you want to sue me, my name is Dan Bolier, and you can find me at Dan Bonos on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Stop cyberbullying, Dan. Oh, oh, he's in the other room. I could go get him if you want me to just in person bully him again. Anyways, oh, yeah. all right, I'm done. done. I'm done feuding with people who aren't on this call for now. What else do we have to talk about? Maybe we should talk about carving up the text because that okay. seems to be, keep coming up as part of how we're interpreting all the characters recently. Yeah. Mary Angel, you want to go first? I feel like I keep going first and talking for a long time. Look, if I go first, I'm just going to talk about the McKellen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, <laughs> I thought, 
Well, the one thing I thought was funny with both of the plays was that both of the Richards, who both were obviously very principal in pulling together the scripts, were like, yeah, we're going to do Richard III, I'll star, but uh, there's all this great stuff in Henry VI Part Three that I'm definitely bringing over. That's coming with me. <laughs> I can I can smile and murder while I smile. That's definitely coming along. You can come right on through here. Awesome monologue from Henry the Sixth, Part Three. Um, and you know, I don't know if that's something that Olivier just did because he's like, "Hey, they named an acting award after me, so I get to do whatever monologues I want." And then McKellen was like, "Well, Olivier did it, so I kind of have to, I suppose." But then, other than that, like, <coughs> there are so many different, very bold choices that i don't really understand what the like what why they did them so like the lady Anne scene that we talked about in the olivier they split the seduction scene up into two separate scenes with the clarence scene in the middle it's like Mm. why why'd they do that i can guess at why they might have done that what do you think Uh, Because a lot of the time when people try and adapt Shakespeare for the screen, what they will do is they will cut up scenes so that you don't lose track of any characters for too long. Because on stage, it's, you know, both for practical reasons, you don't want to keep switching the scenery and switching the characters. Um, But people are also just used to having characters disappear for 20 minutes or 40 minutes, um, which doesn't really happen on film as much. And so it's quite common this is something that Richard Eyre did a lot in his Henry the Fourth Part One really well, and Henry the Fourth Part Two in ways that kind of messed it up for me because I think the whole point of Henry the Fourth Part Two is that Henry the Fourth is not around. But so just to doing that so that you're sort of keeping track of the characters, it makes sense to me that you want to keep people reminding people that we're still on the Clarence subplot, and my guess would be that's the reason why it got split up as opposed to because he wanted to split that scene in particular. That makes sense. Um, that's actually a really, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I learned it makes something. sense as a cinematic choice, but that's a, it's a difficult scene no matter how you're doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and to split it up makes it even less believable when it takes a lot of work to make it even plausible. In terms of his her agreeing to be or her either falling for him or agreeing to be seduced, you mean? Yes, precisely. Yeah, yeah. right. Because it kills the momentum. Because when they cut it after she spits on him, like that's his whole angle, right? That he's like, "Why are you so mean to me?" And she's like, "Uh, because you killed my whole family." And he's like, "Well, I did it for you." And she's like, "Oh, that that took an unexpected turn." Okay, but when you spread it out over a couple of days, yeah, it's like, mm, mm. um. Right. And then also like the fact that the Clarence scene uh, in the in the Olivier, they just cut the whole thing, you know, where it's like the murderers come in and Clarence is like, hey, can I have a glass of wine? And they're like, you'll have plenty of wine. And then they just stuff them in a wine cast in a wine <laughs> barrel. And they're like, "Up, oh, we just cut eight pages. Bye. You know, <laughs> um, they really whereas, don't give him any opportunity to be like sweet talking as Richard warns them that he is. <laughs> right. They took they took Richard's warning very seriously in the Olivia. <laughs> like, he's gonna try and talk you out of it, so just stab the hell out of him as soon as he says hello. Just stab him. Uh, whereas in the McKellen, I felt like that Clarence monologue took forever and also had one of the rare sun shower thunderstorms. Where it was like a gorgeous day, and then it's like, 
it's like a monsoon and it's like broad daylight. I'm like, I'm confused about the climate of this region. <laughs> not really sure about that. I uh, mean, I just thought it was extreme pathetic fallacy. Um. <laughs> Nothing about that version is subtle. Um, <laughs> you have to either take it for what it is or, you know. Okay, but on the other hand, when you have Nigel Hawthorne, give him some lines. I know. And that's totally what it was, too, right? That he was like, hey, would you be Clarence? And he's like, ah, are you going to just stuff me in a wine barrel in like a second? Because then, no, I'm not interested. He's like, oh, no, we'll give you the monologue. Go ahead. We'll put you on this weird Mad Max circle to stand on and do whatever you want for like five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I agree that that monologue does kind of go on, but I do think, I mean, because I, I just watched Nigel Hawthorne's other 1995, or I guess it was 96, Shakespeare film, Twelfth Night. And so I was really impressed by how incredibly different he is as Clarence. And also extremely handsome. Like, I don't know what they did to him in Twelfth Night to make him just... Hot? Pardon? Hot? <laughs> hot? <Even> not hot. <laughs> Like in Twelfth Night, they I don't know, it seemed like they aged him by 30 years because in this he still seems quite, you know, strapping and, I mean, not young, but not dying. He's a silver fox. Yes. <laughs> what other, I'm trying to think of other, I'm rifling through my notes to think of other weird cuts. Oh, the whole, uh, um, the fact that in the Olivier, they leave in so much of Mistress Shore. Like, Mistress Shore is bigger than Clarence. And it's like, wh why? Why are we spending so much time with Mistress Shore? Like, I, I don't want to be too, like, 1950s movie producer, but, like, did, did Larry Olivier want to, like, sleep with her or something? Like, why was she in so much of this? It's like she's the most minor of characters, and, like, she's sleeping with Edward IV. And it's like, what? Okay. Interesting. He's dead, basically, but Okay. Still working that. All right. I like your game. I like your angle. I have to say I was disappointed that they cut Margaret in um, the McKellen one. I hate to be Margaret Beaufort. I was going to say how great it was that they cut her. Okay. Well, I, but can I give you my reason? Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Because as I, so I was just reading Richard III earlier this week, and I discovered, which I hadn't realized, that, you know, like the favorite, the many people's favorite Twitter shame is name period, right? Where somebody says something that you don't like and then you respond with their name and then a period, like Kevin period. Or that's hurtful. Mary that's cyberbullying, Alex. That's fine. I guess that's okay for you to do. That's fine. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Richard started it. <laughs> Interesting. Richard started it because he has this whole exchange oh, with Margaret, Margaret. Where, yeah. where he goes to Margaret and then she's like, let me finish my thought. And he's like, I already finished it for you. And it <laughs> ended with a stop. It's a very, it's a very funny bit, <laughs> especially because she's so intense. And then, yeah. And then he just ends with Margaret. It's basically like the, it's the 1590s equivalent of that, you know, face. Gotcha. Yes, uh, but I think that the problem with both of these adapt with Richard doing Richard the Third on your own is it's like I don't know how you could have contextualized her in the McKellen. Like, who would she have putting it in that like World War Two? Like, is she a is she, 
I guess you could make her, well, you wouldn't be friend. Like, is she German? Like, I don't know how you have that character exist in that universe, you know? Like, I thought in the same way that I thought it was so yeah. great for Elizabeth and Rivers to be American, that, like, you yeah. get that whole story right there. You're like, oh, Edward married an American. That is such an affront. I I, I <laughs> yeah. don't. I don't know what Margaret could be that you'd be like, oh, I understand what that character is in this story. Yeah. No, I mean, it is good that, in that sense, it is good that they get rid of her because it's often very confusing who she is when you see her on stage. And in the, like, Sam Mendes production, <gasps> with all the doors, why were there so many doors? <laughs> she was like the ghost of Christmas past plonked into <laughs> Shakespeare. That's kind of what she is, though, is the problem. Like, even when she shows up, like, that she should just be, (laughs) she should just be costumed as Jacob Marley and walk in with the chains and be like, Richard, stop making everyone work on Christmas Eve. Like, she knew what you said, Emmy. What did you say? She literally was in the Sam Mendes production. (laughs) Yeah, no, she really was. And then the whole stage was just like 20 doors and she just like opened and closed the doors and came on to this day. I still don't know why there were so many doors. The world has been waiting for the noises off adaptation of Richard the third. (laughs) (laughs) I have not, is that one available on, is that one on film too? I haven't seen that one. No, it isn't. Mm. Um, it's a problematic production. It has a lot of interesting <laughs> ideas. Kevin Spacey uh-huh. is amazing. I saw it from oh, that one. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. Okay. Biggest nosebleed. Like the the seats could not have been more nosebleedy. I was literally in the back row of the balcony when I saw it, uh-huh. and I could only hear every third word. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and there was an earthquake in the middle of it, also because it was in California. <laughs> wow, that's uh, <laughs> the production. That must have been very expensive. um but yeah he was amazing he was like just you had better seats when you saw him in london i think ma but i thought kevin spacey was really great Hmm. well i see him play richard the third every time i watch an episode of house of cards so i'll believe it well yes that's true exactly that's exactly what i have to keep explaining this to people that that it is in fact his richard the third that he played richard the third and then he did house of cards and that david fincher directed the first episode like richard the third it makes um, sense. His Richard was a little bit darker than his Frank Underwood. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, because you've got that scene immediately. Sorry, we're talking about a production that nobody can see. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, those of you at home. Um, but he's got that scene immediately after his coronation, which is right before the intermission where he's wearing the crown and the ermine mantle and Lady Anne is by his side and he just looks out at the audience like this. No. It's a scan. You scan from left to right for those of you listening (laughs) to the video dial. Sorry. Um, (laughs) And he has this like truly vicious expression on his face. Like this is a man who is paranoid and malicious. Mm -hmm. And then the curtain comes down. And you're like, he's king now, but it's only going to get worse. So then what was the, how did the sec, did the second act just start like with him scanning from right to left? And then it was like, shall we wear the crown for but a day? And then it went from there. No, the first thing I can remember at the second act, but in fairness, this was years ago, was him yelling, I am not in the giving vein. Oh yeah. So they just cut the middle of that scene out. Okay. 
that's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. Next part of this discussion will be available to download on Monday. To keep up with the latest episodes, subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-R-O-W dot com. Thank you.